Uh, welcome, folks. Amen. All right, so, well, it's not, I don't have a specific, specific text this morning, although initially I did have. So I get the opportunity to share the last message for the year, and um, then next week we start a new year. And um, so we're all getting a little older, praise the Lord. But in terms of the Christian life, that's the most important thing and our relationship with God. So as I was pondering what would possibly be an appropriate message to share with you, um, one thing came to my mind. Now I say that with a bit of tongue-in-cheek. One thing came into my mind. And you know what that one thing was? One thing. (laughs) Now that is the title of my message this morning, one thing. Now, the reality is, is I was going to speak from uh, one particular text in Philippians, which uh, when we think of the word one thing, I do, we can kind of, we're all familiar with that. But as I pondered it, I realised that there's a couple of other things that we want to consider in the context of one thing as spoken of in the scriptures because the reality is is that there are actually numerous um, references in the Bible that deal with this phrase, one thing. Uh, in the New Testament, even in the Old Testament as well and so I've, uh, I've chosen five, five particular phrases where we find the expression or the words that are used, one thing. And each of these teach us or reveal to us something specific about our own relationship with God, our own walk with God. Because the reality is is that um, as we live this life, as the years tick over, each of us are uh, are one year on and who knows whether we'll even be here next year, this time. I don't know, there's no guarantee on these things, but one thing is for certain, amen, that we know God that we have a relationship with Jesus Christ and that uh, whether we're in the body or out of the body, we will be present with the Lord and that will continue for eternity. Amen? So it's in that aspect that is the first and foremost, the one thing that is of the greatest significance in this life. I know that in the life that we live, there's the mundane aspects from day to day, week to week, year to year and all that it surrounds. But that's the most important thing is our relationship with God. Our fellowship with God. Our our salvation, the fact that we have been saved from eternal damnation. We have passed from judgment into life. And a salvation that is eternal, salvation that is ours. And uh, as a result of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and all that God has accomplished through Christ Jesus. And so it's in light of this reality that I want to keep this theme in our minds of one thing. One thing. Okay, so I think I've made that emphasis. And so we're first going to look at John Gospel chapter 9, if you could turn there and we'll turn to various other ones as we move along. But the truth is, is that lots of things can happen in a course of a year. Amen? I mean, you think back to this, uh, back to January last year and you begin to realise that over the course of the year, lots of things have happened, lots of things have transpired and we can reflect on that year and we can consider some of the good aspects maybe or some of the bad and the negative. And the truth is, is that both exist. And so that's just the reality of life. It's just the reality of year to year. For whatever reasons and for various reasons, it is what it is. And so as we move on from year to year, we're not out to make our New Year's resolutions as such, although it's good to reflect and ponder and make determinations, don't get me wrong. But, you know, it's not like life starts again in the New Year. You know, we're just maintaining and we're moving forward. And so 
the first thing of the one thing that we must understand is our salvation that is in Christ Jesus and just how glorious and how precious it is. Because it doesn't matter what happens in this life, the fact remains that I and you are saved and that is the most glorious thing of all. Amen. And in John chapter 9, we have a story of a blind man. He was born blind. And in this particular passage of scripture, Jesus uh, comes to him and Jesus heals the blind man. This man was born blind and now he's totally healed and can see. And so obviously this is causing immense uh, um, uh, a ruckus amongst the religious establishment because they are already in the process of re- uh, rejecting the testimony of Jesus Christ. He's already a controversial figure for the fact that, of uh, that which he's preaching but now he's bringing forth these signs uh, and here is this miracle of healing the blind man. And you know the story, they, they bring the parents of this blind man in before the, um, uh, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, uh, and they want to interrogate them, they want to uh, ask them various questions to validate what has happened. Is this your son? Was he born blind? And, they, and, and, uh, and, and in doing so, they're wanting to actually determine whether these people are actually accepting the testimony of Jesus of whether he is or is not the Messiah. And so they ask the question and the parents go, well, we, one thing, uh, we, so they say one thing, they said, well, we're, one, what we know is our son was born blind, but now he sees. And so uh, how it happened, and uh, let him, uh, you ask him for he's of age. And so again, they draw this man in before them and they begin to uh, interrogate him about the Christ and also about his own life. Uh, and then they, they, they can't deny the fact that a notable miracle has occurred. But at the same time, they are in opposition to the testimony of Christ as the Messiah. And so therefore, they say, listen, you ca- uh, this man is a sinner. That's what they said. He, he can't, you need to give glory to God. We don't understand the dynamics of all of this, but I tell you, we are rejecting the testimony of Jesus Christ. And then they said, do you believe in this man? And this man says, listen, one thing. Let's go to, actually, let's go to verse 24 of John 9. Let's look at it from there. So they called again the man who was blind and they said to him, Give, glory to, uh, give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered and said, Whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. But one thing I know. Though I was blind, now I see. And so here it is, he's making forth his statement and his position and the reality for this blind man is this, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I know is that I was blind and now I can see. And so you know, everyone wants to you know, reason this away and say whatever, oh, I'll give God the glory, this man's a sinner, we know that. And so a miracle has taken place. But you know, as great of a miracle as that was to have been healed of his blindness, it, it is a spiritual lesson, there is a spiritual parallel that comes because the greater miracle for this man is he ultimately believed on the Lord. And so you find a little bit later, you can go to verse 39, 35, of the same chapter. And Jesus, uh, because after, the, after he's uh, come out of the, um, before the council and so forth, we pick it up at verse 35. Then Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? And he answered and said, Who is he, Lord? that I may believe in him. And Jesus said to him, you have both seen him in his eyes. 
And um, you have both, sorry, verse 37, you have both seen him and it is he who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped. And then he said, uh, then Jesus said, for judgment I have come into the world that those who do not see may see and that those who see may be made blind. Now Jesus here is not talking about physical sight. He's talking now spiritual. He's storing a spiritual lesson out of this for us to understand. And so the greater miracle is not the man's ability to see physically, but the greater miracle is for him to see the Christ, to understand that he's the Christ, and to believe on the Christ. Amen? And as a result of that, to receive eternal life. That's the greatest miracle. And so this is the parallel for the believer. It's obviously quite obvious when he says, one thing I know, though I was blind, now I see. We don't use that in the context of physical healing, although there are those that actually have been healed of their blindness. But we know as the great song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I, was, I once was lost, but now I'm found blind, but now I see. What's he seeing? He's seeing the Christ. He's seeing the Messiah. And this is the greatest miracle for us, amen, to worship God, to know that the Messiah, to see and identify the Messiah and his work and the work of redemption of Calvary and the cross and all that it pertains. And the fact is, is that we know it, church. And know this. The miracle of salvation that we have is not something that is of our initiative. You know, when Peter, Jesus said to those disciples in Matthew 16, who do men say that I am? And they're all reasoning about him. Oh, you're, you know, some say you're one of the prophets, one say you're this, one say you're that. He says, who do you say I am? To Peter, he says, you're the Christ. Flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. But my Father in heaven revealed it. So in other words, for him to identify the Messiah was a revelation from God. And so too it is for you and I. Amen. We don't sit here with an understanding of the Christ based on our own intellectual abilities. We stand here, amen, whether, regardless of your intellectual capacity, based on a revelation that God has given each of us that Jesus is the Christ. And we believed, Amen. And therefore we are saved and one thing I know, I was once blind but now I see. I had no idea who Jesus was until the day he revealed himself to me and likewise you. And so how glorious it is when it comes down to everything in this life, there's one thing that's certain. Amen? One thing I know, everything else is so unstable in the world, you can't put hope of faith and trust in none of it. But there's one thing I know, that Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. He has defeated death. He's coming back and I'm saved and I'm going to heaven. Amen and amen. Full stop. One thing. And that's the first thing of the one thing that we can rejoice in because this is the nature of the gospel, is it not? Paul the Apostle even said as he testified of the gospel that he preached in Acts 26 in verse 18, he says the ministry that the Lord had sent him to was to open their eyes, that he's talking about the Gentiles, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me to open their eyes. And the only, and Paul's talking again, just as Jesus spoke of, it's about seeing the Christ and being saved and glory to God. That's the first thing of the one thing. Let's look at the second thing of the first thing, of the one thing, if that makes sense. Let's go to Psalm 27. In Psalm 27 we have David. And David, as his, his psalms are so wonderful and the psalms themselves, 
their various authors and how great that they are. But David, as he contemplates and as he writes and as he worships the Lord, he says in Psalm 27 and in verse 4 and 5, listen to these words. One thing I have desired of the Lord that will I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple for in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion in in the secret place of his tabernacle. He shall hide me, he shall set me high upon a rock. See, here's David's heart in the midst of everything that David had to endure and suffer and experienced as a result of circumstances of his life, as he pens and contemplates and writes these songs and pens these words, he concludes and he says, one thing that is my heart's desire, that's my passion in this life, is is, uh, one thing I desire of the Lord and that is what I'm going to seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. In other words, uh, uh, that I may dwell in the presence of God. Thank God, amen, that the glorious, uh, glorious hope of the gospel is in Colossians 1.27, Christ in us, the hope of glory. We are the temple of God. And so we already have this, 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 this glory that dwells in us. And yet, uh, we, how often do we neglect uh, to we, uh, we don't take the time to just worship the Lord and to just ponder and to just pray and to just spend time in his presence. So David here speaks and he says that the one thing that he has desired, his passion is to dwell in the house of the Lord or to abide in Christ is the equivalent, to behold the beauty of God. You know, the, the more we take the time out from life just to, just to meditate upon God, the more we begin to see the glory of God, the more we behold the beauty of the Lord. And I know that as the years have gone on for me as a Christian, from year to year, I see God in the most more glorious ways. Amen? There's something else to behold about his beauty, about his nature, about his character, in all that he is, and I continue to adore him and to stand in awe of such a wonderful God. To behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple, or in other words, to receive the instructions that come from God. Thank God that we have this book, church. In life, everything centers around this book. And we read it, we inquire of it, we pray and the Lord reveals, the Lord speaks and he directs and he guides our steps and his word is a light to my path and a lamp to my feet. And so we make inquiry of the word and the word speaks. And so, again, one thing I have desired of the Lord. And I pray that we too would have this passion as we contemplate and consider all things in life that we would make this the same as David and desire this of the Lord. So, therefore, David says, because I desired it, what did he do? He sought it. It doesn't just come automatic. You have to seek God. You have to determine these things. We have to make those choices because the tendency is to neglect. The tendency is to just, you know, oh, well, there's so many other things I can do. But how much time are we spending with God? That's the one thing we should desire. Amen? So let's look further. Let's go to Luke chapter 10. Now, again, this is another interesting portion of Scripture that we're familiar with, and it's the story of Jesus and Mary and Martha. And so we're familiar with the fact that Jesus has come into the home of Mary and Martha. And Martha, the Bible says, she's all, she's all uh, frazzled, as probably most women are when they're receiving some visitors, because we've got to get the house in order. 
We've got to make sure that this is presentable, that this is taken care of and, you know, and that little speck in the corner because they're going to see it. <laughs> the visitors will see it. And we can become anxious and we can become overly concerned to the point of being tied up in these things, which is what Martha's doing. And uh, here's Jesus in her house and you have two sisters who are two opposite people and uh, Martha's fretting around and here's Mary, she's sitting at the feet of Jesus. And she's listening to Jesus, she's talking with Jesus, she's just receiving everything that's coming forth from his mouth and to old Martha, she's thinking, gosh, I've got to get Jesus a drink, I've got to do this, I've got to do that. Oh, oh look at Mary, why isn't she helping me? You know how it works. <laughs> and so she makes a complaint and Jesus gives a response. So let's read it in Luke's Gospel 10 verse 38. Bible says, Now it happened as they went that he entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. She had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving and she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? As if Jesus is going to somehow give a rebuke to, to, to Mary. But rather the opposite, Jesus answers and says to her, Martha, Martha, he sends the exasperation. He says, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken away from her. Mary, see Jesus says, one thing is needed. And it's not that Jesus has a cup of tea. It's not that Jesus has some food put before him. It's not that Jesus is sure he makes sure he's comfortable and everything's happy so he's not, you know, dis disgruntled. The one thing that is needed, Mary had chosen it. And she utilised and made the most of that moment of time and here she is sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to his word. How precious it is. And again, the, 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 the lessons are quite obvious as we consider these things, but we need to stop for a moment and listen to what Jesus says because he says to Martha, one, you are distracted, one, and we can be distracted. And he says, two, one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that. That one thing is to sit at his feet and hear his word. Can you say amen? Now think about it. Because we too can get caught up and distracted with so much in, in this life. And even in, our, as in, in the Christian life as we serve God, it's even possible to get so caught up in our service and busyness for the Lord that we can neglect our own fellowship and relationship with God. Because, you know, we've got to do this and that. And I'm, these things are not wrong. These are commendable. These things are good and, 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 and they should be. But they should never supersede the most important thing, the one thing that is needed. And that is that we are maintaining and building our relationship with God. And how do we do it? We, we sit at his word. Not just coming to church, that's only one small aspect of our Christian life. It is us coming in the presence of God, dwelling in the house of the Lord, picking up a Bible and reading and just meditating and, ask, and just praying and spending time with Christ. That's all that it is. See, Mary, uh, she, she was just worshipping at the feet of Jesus, just adoring him, just loving him, just listening to him just talking to him. And that's what we need to learn to do, amen? Just take out time in the day and as people say, it's usually the first time in the morning because once the day starts, it's hard, isn't it? You get to run on things, it's like, oh. <laughs> and so for, for most people, it's, uh, and as for me, it is setting up that discipline firstly in the morning. It's that quiet time. There's no distractions and you just sit down and you read your Bible, you just ponder, you pray and you spend quality time with Jesus and sit at his feet. That's the one thing that's needed. 
They see, you say, well, there's so many needful things in my life because, you know, I've got to work and, and I've got to provide and, you know, I've got to worry about this and worry about that. You know, uh, my career, my work, my education, my degree. Like, these things may have some relevance of important to our lives, but if they supersede the one thing that is needed, then there's a problem. I don't care what it is. It can be ministry even, can't it, Pastor Werner? Anything that supersedes the one thing that is needed, then is, the, is a problem. And we have to understand that. We have to recognise that. You see, we make excuses why we can't, but it doesn't, it doesn't cut it. You see, if we neglect and we drift and all of a sudden you can go days and weeks and sometimes even months, I don't know, and you haven't actually had any quality time with God. And it ought not to be so, church. We must, there's one thing that's needed and that is to learn to sit at the feet of Jesus and not be distracted. I know there's a thousand things that are clamouring in our minds that are demanding our attention and mothers as well, they've got children that are making demands. I know the pressures of life can be much but each of us have to sort out and we have to navigate and we have to work out a way and this involves some level of discipline in which we are making sure that we're having our time with the Lord. Amen? One thing is needed and we need to learn that lesson. You see, even, even like uh, Jesus when he comes to the Ephesus church in Revelation, you know, he was a church that was busy, extremely busy and they were commended for their, that aspect of their, their lives. But Jesus said, this is the one thing that I have against you. You've left your first love. You le- <laughs> Repent. And do the first works, he says. The first work, the most important thing, the one thing that is needed is make sure you don't leave your first love. We see, we can still go through all the outward motions of the Christian life, we can function, but, uh, but we are neglecting that aspect and that is the one thing that's needed. Amen. And I pray that we see that this morning through this particular portion of text. So let's let's move now, if we can, to Mark chapter ten. Gospel of Mark chapter ten. There's another story again about the rich young ruler. And so the story goes that this particular man comes to Jesus. And um, he says to him in verse 17 of Mark 10, he says, Well, Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus uh, says to him, Well, one, why do you call me good? No one's good, that one is God. But then he says, You know the commandments don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't be defraud. Honour your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. Then Jesus looked at him, the Bible says in verse 21, loved him because he was about to give him a hard word and said to him, One thing you lack. One thing you lack. Sell, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, take up the cross and follow me. Now this can be, have various applications but the point I want to emphasise here is Jesus says uh, this is the one thing that you lack. Go and sell all that you have and follow me. Now, if Jesus was laying forth a rule that was related to all of us to possess eternal life, then we're all going to be in, in trouble, or well, at least some of us, or whatever. Because it's not a rule that Jesus is setting forth in terms of the need to sell, the, the, the house, uh, sell your possessions and follow him. Although, for some, 
it may bear relevance depending on situation and circumstance. I don't know. But the point that Jesus is making is he's addressing this man's heart because his heart is tied to his possessions, to his wealth. And he's of the mindset of what do I have to do to achieve it and so forth. But Jesus says to him, one thing you lack. And that one thing that he lacks, go and sell all that you have and follow me. This is about an issue of the heart. And the one thing that causes us or hinders us from fully surrendering and serving the Lord Jesus Christ sacrificially because Jesus says to him, go and sell all that you have and follow me and, um, uh, and you'll have treasure in heaven and come, take up the cross and follow me. Take up the cross. You see, if we're going to follow the Lord, if we're going to serve God, then the, the reality in, is this. In salvation, in, as we turn to the Lord and in the course of the Christian life, as we uh, begin to say, Lord, your will, not my will, be done, then we have to learn to, this lesson of what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. The issue of, sa of sacrifice. Whatever it is that would hinder us from fully surrendering in this life and from serving him in the manner in which he would require of us, what is the one thing that we lack in our relationship with the Lord that may hinder the time that we spend with him or may hinder our ability to serve him in a manner that we know is unacceptable? I'm not here to tell you what right wrong in certain instances, but if you are praying and you are walking with God and you're committing things to the Lord, the Lord would, could say, there's one thing that you lack. And so there's one thing that maybe has to be dealt with or resolved in your life in order for you to surrender fully unto the Lord and follow him and do his will. And so what's the one thing that could lack in our relationship with God? Maybe again, getting back to the issue of, of just prayer, reading your Bible and serving the Lord in, in various ways. What is, uh, what is God's will for your life? And, if, and, and in light of what's God's will, what does that demand of you? What does that require of you? Because if, uh, if, if this is the way in which the Christian life works. Our life is not our own. We were bought at a price. And so in, one of the things that we have to learn is that uh, um, it's, it's, it's God that is first. And so we have to consider this in light of the, the manner in which it's being spoken of. And so one thing Jesus says you lack. And it may be one thing that we lack in our walk with God, an area of our life that the Lord would speak to us about. And so we need to address that. We need to, again, uh, uh, take, consider these things uh, and resolve them before the Lord. And um, I think um, Barbara shared, I remember when uh, my wife, Barbara, when she was first became a Christian and she was, um, um, came to church for the first or second, third time anyway, but she had left her parents, she was young in those days and she didn't, she wasn't allowed for about one year to, to go to church. Her parents wouldn't allow her to freely serve God and be a Christian, obviously they being Macedonian Orthodox. And one day she reached a point and said, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm going to church. And so her parents weren't home, so she wrote a note, to be honest with them, to let them know where she was. And they came home and saw. And then, and I tell you the truth, that, that, that message, that, that Sunday in church, the pastor preached on Isaac, Abraham and Isaac, and the issue of sacrifice and, and, um, and so forth. And then in that service, her father came that day and disrupted the whole service, shut it down. She was forced to go outside and there was events that took place in the foyer that disrupted the whole church service. Let's just put it that way. But you see, that was the one thing that she had to deal with. He loves father, mother, brother, sister, more than me. He's not worthy of me. Now that's a hard saying, isn't it? But that could be one thing that we lack. We have to, we have to address these things. You see, taking up our cross, is, it's not pleasant. When has a cross been pleasant? 
Oh, this is my cross. Praise the Lord. That cross can... It's a sacrifice. It hurts. It's hard. But I tell you, it's precious. Because when you do that, you receive the blessing of God. And, uh, and for Barbara, it meant that she had, after that, complete liberty to serve the Lord. Uh, as uh, she did in rest is history. Eh? Amen. But these are, these are, in some ways, how it works. Okay, let's, let's move on. Let's go to the last portion of text in Philippians chapter 3, which we're familiar with. But in the epistle, in this particular book, Paul the Apostle is writing and this is the last one thing that we find in the scripture. Now this text, I'm not going to be exhaustive on it because obviously there's lots of things that we could address here and go into. So I just want to stick with the theme and, and make various, draw some various truths out of it. But Paul says uh, in verse, um, uh, where is it, uh, verse 13, he, he says, uh, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. You know, this particular scripture is such, one, is such a wonderful portion of text. In its context, obviously, but in its greater application in life as well. I, again, I say this and I, as I read this, I remember specifically in my life one particular instance before the Lord and, uh, and I, I was regretting some things that had happened in my life uh, prior to some circumstances and and I was bearing the burden of that and the weight of that. Now I had confessed and I'd repented before the Lord, but I just felt the heaviness and weight of those things uh, and the disappointment upon my life. And I remember as I was in the middle of the night, mind you, sitting and just pondering and just praying, this particular scripture came to me with such potent power that I was able to just received the word for what it was and I got up that next morning and I was totally liberated and set free because of that particular scripture. And uh, because uh, it has various applications, like I said, but uh, the reality is, is this is the one thing Paul says I do I f and it's in two parts. The one thing that Paul says he does is in two parts, I forget those things that are behind me and I press forward or reach forward to those things which are ahead. Now this is important, especially in the context of a new year. You see, what's, in, what's interesting is the, when, what Paul is speaking here from verse 12 to verse six, uh, 15 is interesting. Actually, before we move it, let's read it. But before, actually, uh, it, it's, it's in 1 Corinthians chapter um, uh, 9, Paul gives us an analogy about uh, uh, the, the athlete. And he talks about how he beats his body and brings it into subjection so that he can do the will of God and that he would not be disqualified but he would be able to just press on and fulfil, as he would say here, the upward call of God. And so this is the analogy in a sense, some of the things that Paul's thinking as he's writing this with that mindset. So let's read at verse 12. Paul says, Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but, one, uh, but I press on, that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid a hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press forward or, uh, toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, Therefore let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. 
See, Paul is, again, he's talking, I press on, I press forward, I'm reaching forward. It's this idea of, of, of movement uh, and uh, we find those various expressions, as I said in 1 Corinthians 9 and, and also when he writes to Timothy about being a, a good soldier um, and what that means. But then, uh, so, and also in Timothy he writes about, at the end of his life, he says, uh, I, have, uh, I have run the race. He says, I, I have fought the good fight. He says, I have fought the good fight. Because really, in this, uh, in terms of, you know, in terms, Paul's talking about keeping the faith and there's aspects there to it. But nevertheless, even in our lives, as we go through and the various experiences and sufferings and, and the circumstances that we endure, as we've looked at this in Ephesians, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. So we are in a fight. And I fought, Paul says, I fought the good fight. And this is at the end of his life he has endured and he says, I have fought the good fight, I have run the race, I have kept the faith. And so uh, again, this is, uh, ties into what we're considering here in Philippians. Paul says, uh, I press on. Look at verse 12. He's, not that I am already, uh, verse 12, I'm not, I haven't attained. Or in other words, at this point he's saying, I haven't finished the race. I haven't yet received the prize. He says, I, I, I have, not that I have already attained or am already perfected. He knows that, but he knows it's coming. But I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid a hold of me. I press on. You see, the need in the Christian life, amen, is to press on. This is a lesson we all have to learn at some point in our Christian walk. You have to press on. Because there are times, amen, you just say, I want to give up. I can't do this. Have you, have you ever thought those things? Yet the word of the Lord is, you must press on. You must press forward. Paul says, I have not yet apprehended. He hasn't yet obtained these things, but he is pressing on. He's following after. And the idea here is through struggles. Through sufferings, he's pressing forward against the flow, against the opposition, because that's what life is like. And the Christian life is like that as well. And so we have to consistently have a mindset, like Paul says, I'm going to press on. So many people give up and they, they walk away, or they drift away, or they turn their back. But you see, it's in the midst of that time that the word of the Lord to us each is press on. Press on. Press forward. See so again, Paul says in verse 13, Brethren, I don't count myself to have apprehended all that, it, but one, again, but one thing I do, one thing I do is I forget those things that are behind me. You know, church, one of the things we learn in life is you can't change the past. You can't. How many people live their lives crippled in the present because of issues of the past? You see it. How many people, because of sin maybe, or just whatever the circumstances are, uh, or just some of the regrets maybe of life, I'm not sure, but things happen and things, have, uh, whether we are victims or whether we have been, we're perpetrators or whatever the case is, uh, at the end of the day, we can't live in the past. You've got to forget those things that are behind. Or in Paul's case, he's thinking, I, you know, all, that I've, uh, all the work that I have done unto the Lord and the works that I've done up until this point of time, he's not sitting there blowing his trumpet, oh, I remember those days when I was this and that. He's looking forward to what's ahead. He says, I press on for the upward call, the high calling of God, or the next thing that God has for me. You see? We get the middle of the years and we can, things can change. But you see, church, as I said, we've got to forget those things that are behind. This is so critical. Whether they're good or bad, whether they're failures or successes, we can't rest upon them or be bound by them. They're past. They're gone. You can't go back. You can't change the past. 
You see, so many people get beholden to the past. And we can't live in regret, amen? You can't live in despair and despondency. You can't live depressed because of those things that are happened, have happened. I understand their impact. I understand that there's a time for that because of things. But you see, God wants to bring us forward. God wants us to look forward. He wants us to forget those things that are behind and reach forward. Press on. And that's what we have to do. What does Hebrews tell us? That the feeble knees that hang down, don't uh, let them be dislocated, but rather be healed. See, God wants to bring us to the next phase. He wants us to move us on. He wants to heal us uh, of, uh, of things. He wants to uh, bring us into his divine will and purpose or whatever the case may be. But you've got to forget those things that are behind. That was what liberated me because, you see, just to have the thought of failure, the thought of some things that, that, that rest and abide in our mind, the devil just wants to constantly mess with us, bring us into condemnation and guilt and never really feel as though we're forgiven. How can my life ever be the same? Well, you know what? Maybe there can be various things that can uh, play themselves out in our lives, but this is the reality, church. One thing. I do. You know, he's David. He's just had the whole issue of adultery. And then, you know, he, he realises that the child is sick, that is born to Bathsheba. And, um, you know, he knows that God's going to... Oh, he's praying that God's... Uh, this child's about to die. And he's... he's I mean, he's, he's in a bad state. They were looking at him. He's crying out to God, have mercy. I mean, he's distressed. He's distraught in the present circumstances of just prior to this child's death, then the child dies. And you know what David does? He gets up, he goes, okay, let's, let's go. <laughs> They're like, huh? what's wrong with you? Well, he said, well, you know, while the child was alive, I begged for mercy, but this is what's happened, this is how it's ended, now I've got to move on. You see? And that's how it is. You've got, to, you've got to forget those things that are behind. The Lord put away David's sin and as a result of all that happened and David began to look forward to that which was ahead. That's what we have to do. See, this doesn't mean that we don't contemplate the past in order to gain useful and profitable lessons from it. I mean, we can do that. We can all reflect upon the year and, and consider these things. But what I'm saying to you this morning is don't be bound in the past. Forget those things. Forget those things. And uh, one, this is one thing I do. Forget those things that are behind. And I reach forward to those things that are ahead. And that word to reach forward, uh, again, the analogy there is uh, to press, again, as, as before, to press forward to stretch oneself. It means the strong exertions of one in a race. You know, when, when the athletes are running and there's a 100-metre sprint, you know, you don't just see them going... You know, they're, 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 they're reaching forward right till they get to that line and, you know, they're pressing forward. And again, I give that analogy to just illustrate that we... The Paul says, I'm reaching forward. I'm stretching forth myself. There's an self-effort here. There's an exertion of oneself... Uh, and in doing so, um, uh, this is a commendable thing in terms of our walk with the Lord. So verse 14, he says, I, One thing I do, I forget those things which are behind and I reach forward to those things that are ahead. I press towards the goal. There it is again, I press. Second time, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus. You see, in the same way Paul understood that there was a crown for him, as he understood that he had run the race, he had fought the good fight, he had kept the faith, uh, then here it is, uh, he says uh, uh, that, that we are to uh, be of the same mind and he says we are to press on, upward, towards the goal of the, of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Seek God, draw near to God. 
because one day we're going to be with him, amen? And as we serve him faithfully and we stand before the great, uh, sorry, the great, uh, the judgment seat of Christ uh, and as we, uh, uh, these things are considered, amen, we will receive a reward. There will be rewards. You mustn't lose sight of that. That's why the things that we do in this life that relate to of eternal value, they have eternal significance. And Paul understood this. You know, naked we come into the world, naked we go out, church. At the end of the day, everything in this life may serve some purpose, but it has no eternal value. That's why we must give ourselves to those things that are of eternal value. And the Christian life requires endurance and perseverance. And so that's what we need. Amen. In saying all of that, Paul says in verse 15, Therefore let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. In other words, let us understand this reality, this truth. One thing I know, one thing I do, forgetting those things that are behind me and pressing forward. And so that's the exhortation that I want to bring to us this, this morning as we come to an end of a year, as we enter into a new year, and just reflect upon the, these five one things that we've looked at. We've looked at uh, the, uh, uh, the uh, one thing I know. I was blind, but now I see. Never forget that. One thing I desire, David said. Jesus said one thing is needed. Jesus said to the young rich ruler, one thing you lack. And Paul says, one thing I do. And so... Maybe we need to do one thing out of this. Maybe two, maybe three, I don't know. But I pray that God speaks to each of us where we're at this morning. And let us contemplate as the year comes to a conclusion. Let's forget those things that are behind. Let us together, amen, in, as corporately and individually press on and reach forward to those things that are ahead because God has great plans. Amen? amen. Praise the Lord. God bless each of you. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for the word of God this morning. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would seal the word to our hearts. God, as that which has spoken, I trust, God, you've been faithful to speak to individuals in, uh, according to your word and according to, Lord, each and every individual life. And I pray as we receive this word, God, we would contemplate these things, that we would consider these things, especially going into the new year, God, let us remember the one thing that is of significance, the one thing that is needed, the one thing that we may lack. Lord, whatever it is, but speak to us that we would press on, that we would reach forward and move into, Lord, a greater intimacy with you, into greater uh, emphasis of uh, your will and your purposes for our lives. I ask your blessing upon each and all. In Jesus' name, Amen.